turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're going to finish out our series on the church this morning, and I want to focus on a text uh, as, as we talk about the, the topic of the value of the church within the community. You notice in the text that Pastor Ben read this morning for our scripture reading that Jesus had, had incredibly displayed his love for people, but also foreshadowed the very thing that he had come to set up, to sacrifice himself, to save the lost, to build the church. You notice how in that text he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. God's call on believers' lives is not only to look internally and say, I'm saved, I'm safe, and I love my church family, and I, and I, and I love being able to go and learn and enjoy, but to not ever think about people outside the walls of the church. Could you imagine if Jesus' mindset was like that, he would have never come. If it was all about his own comfort, all about his own pleasure, the, he, he enjoyed complete unity with the Father and enjoyment in relationship. And yet he came. And as we think, as we have walked through a series, we've talked about the value of belonging to the church. We've talked about the value of discipleship. Pastor Ben uh, came and, and be able to help express that so that we are not only just believers, but believers who are discipled and being discipled. You'll notice there's an intention to remind us after every single Sunday when I say, go and make disciples. There's an intention that it's supposed to occur outside these walls as well. And then, as Andy gave us last week, the value of the church and the next generation. And as we think about it this morning, we think about the, the love for teaching the next generation has to be something that is vibrant within the community because without it, will, we, will, will the next generation even care about others around them and outside the church? And today, as we think about this, we're going to go to Matthew 5 and talk about why, what is the essential duty of the church in the midst of the community. It is like, if you ever had, it's like the church is a community inside a community. And perhaps you work at an occupation where you do very similar things with people. I had the chance to, to work and volunteer as a hospital chaplain. And as I began to get uh, opportunities to build relationships with medical physicians and, and people that were on staff and do rounds with them uh, a number of times uh, every week, you realized it's like they were a community within their own community. And even sometimes when you're a community within a community, what's difficult is it's hard to find your way in. See, but that's not the way it should be in the church. See, the community of believers ought to be one of the most welcoming group of people so that we are going out to the larger community that God has providentially planted, the chapel, and saying, how can I interact with people who need Jesus Christ? Because there are people who are out in our midst, outside in our community, working in our workplaces, serving at gas stations, coffee shops, all of these places you go in your workplace, and they're wondering something about who you are and you have a duty and responsibility to live as a person of light in the midst of that community. 
I love the fact that so often in our church we take advantage of using our facilities for our community. Blood drives and all kinds of different things that we say, come in. This is not a closed off environment. We don't put the barricade up after Sunday and say, please don't park here. We say, welcome. Well, Jesus was often that welcoming character, and we're going to go this morning to a theme of this, and I want to just uh, lay some groundwork and background context a little bit. Now, for those of you, uh, I would really encourage you, ladies, as you're going to go to uh, the ladies' retreat, think about taking time to do that, would you? You might think, I don't have money. There's scholarships for that, so get rid of that excuse. Go and be with your sisters in Christ. Here's one of the reasons why. They're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount. They're going to be talking about, uh, in a larger version of what we're dealing with, and what we're going to talk about today is just the groundwork of the theme so that we can talk about us being the kind of people God wants us to be in the church. Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus laid down on the Sermon on the Mount, remember, uh, Jesus had come off the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. He had went out to the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. In every way, he was assaulted by him and he came out victorious he was then baptized by John the spirit was then endowed on Jesus in in works of power and authority and Jesus began to do all kinds of things Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is very early in Jesus's ministry by the way we know this because as Jesus and his family uh, very likely in the reality that his father at this point had probably passed away. Because as he was working through this, there's a component where all of a sudden Jesus begins to take authority. Jesus begins to take various components so that he would help him, help him understand, this is where I'm taking my family. Matthew chapter 4 expresses this, this context. He's, and I'll just read it for you. He says, now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and he left Nazareth, and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began to gather his disciples. He took four of his disciples, began to do all kinds of miracle-working perspectives in a, very, uh, in a cross-reference uh, passage to this time frame in Mark chapter 3. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Now notice this. When great crowds heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, because of the crowd being so big, lest they crush him. For they had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. Jesus chooses the 12 disciples. And now, by the way, in Jesus' ministry, 
part of his whole teaching component was the fact that he would take unto himself his own disciples like a rabbi would. That was a rabbi's, uh, in a sense, if you want to describe it, like his teaching card, his teaching certificate. If he took disciples to himself, then now he was going to be respected because now we had a group of men that, that now attached themselves to him and were learning and modeling what he taught and were saying it to other people and preaching and teaching that message. On one of those days... Jesus comes to the area of Galilee, now having moved his family. This is in the north area. If you end up, uh, we're going to end up using those maps in the, Bible, in the back of your Bible because they are important for you, but they are unused. But if you look at them and you think, where's Capernaum? It's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And all of this area was the crossroads of where the Gentiles come. Kingdoms converged. Jews were placed. Jesus comes to the area by Capernaum. And it looks a little bit like this. Having been there, this, I, I find it helpful to have a certain amount of visuals. If I can get it to turn, I'll actually show you a picture of where this is at. Since I can't, if you guys will turn it, go ahead and do that. This, is, this particular picture is the area where, where people describe. Now, far in that dark-colored background that you, can, that you can see, there is a hillside, and up in the left-hand corner, there is a church uh, the Church of the Beatitudes that has been planted there as a memorial, a Catholic church that is there as a memorial of this, the, the Beatitudes sermon. You can walk there now, and I've been there, and they gated it off. And so you kind of stand by the gate, and you look down, and you see this flat area all down at the bottom, and this, this hillside of where Jesus would have brought his disciples and this area, by the way, just because it's hard to tell in the picture, uh, in, many, in many times within, uh, they would bring thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in this particular area to take communion at the base of the Church of the Beatitudes, just to give you an idea of the expanse of this area. Jesus wisely brings his disciples, his 12 disciples, along with the crowds. The crowds are in, in huge numbers. They sit down, they sit at his feet, and Jesus begins to use this, this natural amphitheater as his place to speak to the people. And he begins to declare these particular statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now notice, the first section are the blesseds, and the next section that we're talking about is the theme and the introduction of all the rest of the, the content of what he's going to give in the Sermon and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we'll only just briefly touch on those, but I want to, to at least help you realize this 13 through, 7, 13 through 16 is the theme that he begins to lay the groundwork for all the other topics of ethical intent that he wants to bring up to true followers. Now here's what he says in verse 13. Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, follow me. Follow, follow with me as I read. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light in, the, in all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory 
to your Father who is in heaven. He's reminding the people. Now, now think about this. There is thousands of people. Thousands of people who have come. Jesus' mighty miracles and all the things that was going out, demons calling out, this is the Son of God. I mean, if you were sitting there that day and all of a sudden you're seeing this demon be cast out, this person saying, that's the Son of God, another person getting up and walking, another sight being restored. Wouldn't you sit there uh, just in awe? Who is this man? Jesus used his miracles. You can find this all throughout Old and New Testament, the way that miracles were used. Miracles and the intent were to to validate the message of the messenger. They were validating the message of the messenger so that when he would say who he is, what he does, and where he came from, and they would say, prove it, that Jesus could say, if you don't believe in me, he said to the Pharisees, then believe in the works that I do. Believe in the miracles. They were undeniable. Jesus sits down. The crowd sits down. His disciples are there. And Jesus begins teaching about the kingdom of God because he wants to call every person there at that particular sermon that day to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In our text before us, I want to remind us that When we think about being a kingdom citizen, that's who Jesus is talking about, genuine believers. Yes, there were a lot of unbelievers that were there that day on the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus' specific nature is talking to his 12 and and talking to the crowd of those who had now really considered Jesus as the Savior. The 12 had left everything and now had followed Jesus. He wants to express this to these people who are now followers of the King of Kings, that the citizens of God's kingdom must be intentional about declaring God's glory in their community. I mean, Jesus had now just moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and the people were following him, and Jesus' call to the genuine disciples were, I want you to share this message with everyone that you come across. I could only imagine if you were a friend of a friend who knew someone, you would be like those, those, those four friends who grabbed the paralytic guy, grabbed his bed, and say, and he's probably thinking, where are we going? And they're like, we're going to Jesus, buddy. Because <laughs> something's going to happen if we can get you close. <laughs> and everyone who made it there, Jesus was doing so many miracles, by the way, that, that the Gospels say that they can't even be be written in a host of books. But the intent to say there's something about the kingdom citizens that ought to be different than the world that they live in so that when they go out in the midst of the community that they shine as lights of the Son of God who had saved them. Now, I want to give us, I think the text before us today gives us three particular Uh, ways that we can declare God's glory in our lives and in our community. And here's the first, found in verse 13. He describes and uses this particular analogy. You are the salt of the earth. Oh, Christian brothers and sisters this morning, if you have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ and you have followed that message that you have repented because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You, the you in this passage is talking specifically to genuine followers of Jesus Christ. He knew that there were other people who were still looking to make that decision, 
But he says, you as, as disciples, genuine followers of me, you are like the salt of the earth. Oh, there was something very special about salt in the first century. And so often, as, uh, as we understand, they didn't have a refrigeration system to help preserve various foods over time. So salt was a great commodity. And by God's grace, in their particular region, they just happened to have the, the uh, Sea of Galilee flowing down to the Jordan River to the place called the Dead Sea, where there was plenty of minerals and salt, where to this day they are, they are mining the salt out of the Dead Sea continually. It was one of these components that they would, it was used at various capacities to help preserve. It is often said in various, at various times in certain historical books that some people would even get paid, Roman soldiers would get paid with salt. So as they worked their day and then they would go and get this large amount of salt, which is where the expression came from, that's, that they're not worth his salt. A person is not worth his salt. is because the Roman perspective was this was a prized commodity in, in this particular region. If you had food, you wanted to preserve it. If you had something that you wanted to enjoy a little bit more of a savory taste to it. I was thinking about that in my own life. What would life be like without salt? You know, I know there's some people here, by the way, maybe you don't know it, but COVID, as it, as it in, came in contact with their life and their body wiped out their taste buds. Do you realize there are people who haven't tasted a whole lot of anything for a long, long time? Could you imagine, I mean, maybe all of us should do that for a while. We wouldn't go out to eat as much. <laughs> but don't you just love going to a restaurant? And, and it's not just about the kind of food, is it? It's about how they season it. I think to myself, I was thinking, well, what would my life, what would my eggs be like without salt and pepper? I mean, my morning would be ruined. I mean, if all of a sudden someone sets the table and they don't put the salt on, Hello, we need it. There's something about it that when you taste it, it gives flavor. It preserved things, but it also gave things a better taste. He says to the true and genuine believers that were sitting there that day in the Sermon on the Mount at the base of this particular hill, in the cove of the sower, you are the salt of the earth. What are those kinds of people like? Well, it only takes a second to look back and see in Matthew chapter 5. These are the people who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is thinking of this Function. A lot of people look at the, the idea of the salt and they're trying to figure out how far does this analogy go? Salt is white, therefore Christians should be pure. Salt is a preservative, therefore Christians should be preserved. I think there's a lot of ways that we think about salt in the analogy that Jesus uses and I think that what he was probably going for more than any other analogy and all those other analogies of purity and, and components that you'll read in various commentaries and, and Bible study material are certainly true of the Christian. But I think Jesus' main aim was two things. Christians in the community 
act as a preservation or a preserving agent in the midst of a dark, wicked, depraved, and corrupted world. And they also act as a, as a, as a level of savory beauty that when people see them, they go, man, what would this world be like if all of these Christians were gone? Jesus desired for, for them to recognize this analogy, analogy because he wanted them to realize that if the, if the multitudes would be reached, they had to be the salt of the earth. They, couldn't, they weren't called to do what he came to do, but they were called to spread the message. And our goal and, 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 and desire this morning is to retain your saltiness. I hope we leave this message and all of a sudden you're living out your Christian life and you're doing the things right and, and people are seeing God and they're glorifying him because you're letting your light shine and you're retaining your saltiness. Somebody looks at you and goes, you are salty? Look at you, Christian. I love it when you're salty. There's something about it that all of a sudden goes, you are preserving, you are acting as an agent in a corrupt and dark world. He calls us the salt. In so many other passages, he calls us ambassadors. He calls us a temple of God, a body of Christ, a household. All these things to express our job. Because if we don't retain a level of our own uh, saltiness in our spiritual walk, then all of a sudden, what good is it? He says, you are the salt. He said, but if the salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored again? See, what would often happen at the Dead Sea is they would be, they would be cultivating all of these salt particular minerals and they would often sometimes get mixed with other minerals that were there as well. And somehow, in some way, when they traveled and they bought those, those, uh, that salt from the vendor, sometimes they were contaminated with other minerals and it contaminated the salt. And someone would go and, and taste it and they would spit it out because it was disgusting to them. And they could realize this has been contaminated, there's, there's no use for it, so they were really careful. They wouldn't go out and put it on the garden because it'd kill everything. So they would, they would put it in the dirt and let it basically in a place where there was no vegetation and eventually it would just go away. It would be non-existent. And he said, if the salt loses its taste, then what good is it? If all of a sudden it, it, it has no more value, it has no more use to it. I want to challenge you this morning. It's like, if, if our goal is to, re, to be the salt of the earth, which is what genuine citizens of the kingdom of God are supposed to do. And salt, genuine sodium chloride, never loses its saltiness, but when it gets mixed with a whole bunch of other things, it loses its potency. Now you can only take a trip to the ocean and get a, get a feel for how salt, how powerful salt is. I remember when my parents took uh, us there for the first time and we're going out in the waves and I took a big mouthful we're, we're watching home videos uh, one time when we returned, uh, probably five years later, and I come back, and this in the background is there, is, is me having a mouthful of salt and throwing up in the background of this family video. And I'm like, well, this is great. This is exactly what I want my brothers knowing and seeing. 
But salt has a potency to it. But all of a sudden, when it loses that level of power and that level of, of potency, there's nothing that can be done. It's good for nothing. The only thing that you can do with it is to throw it out. Now, I think it does beg the question. We, we at least have to address it because many people uh, will maybe come to this text and say, well, if the salt, if we are the salt of the earth and that's what genuine believers are, then if the salt loses its its taste and loses its savor and then it's thrown out. Is that a believer losing their salvation? No. Because the point is, in John chapter 10, as we think about these things, Jesus says, no man can take anyone out of the Father's hand. All that has been given to Jesus, he retains. So what's his point? His point is, when you lose a level of of, of your Christian walk and you begin to diminish in your love for God, love for community, and your desire to win people to Christ, you lose a level of your effectiveness. That doesn't mean we're judging on the body and saying, okay, who has less salty, no salt enough, you're out of here. No, what we're doing is saying, be effective. Retain your saltiness so that you are an effective Christian. Because, can I just remind you, you're not going to have the opportunities you have right now forever. See, there's something about a preserving agent that comes for the life of the believer. What is that preserving mechanism? It is the spirit that indwells us. I love the shift in the New Testament from the old when it talks about the tabernacle because you had the holy of holies, and when it always talked about God, it would use a preposition, with. God was with and around the people. And then the New Testament comes where Jesus says in John 16, you want me to go because if I go, I'm going to send the comforter to you. And he will not just be with you and around you like he was in the temple. He will be in you and you will be like a temple. And it is only because he indwells you, believer, that you have any ability to retain a saltiness at all he first had to do a work in you and why did he do it by the way because he wanted you to impact he he wanted you to impact people share the message of the gospel tell people that there is a coming judgment that doesn't mean we're going to stand outside the door with one of those big signs on says the world is ending tomorrow but it does mean that there's a seriousness by which we live life I think it's sad living so many times in a depraved uh, culture is that Christians become susceptible where they get contaminated by the world and their potency of their gospel ministry and the indwelling spirit as they sear their conscience, it loses a level of effectiveness because they're they're so interested in the world and they're so minimally interested in the things of God anymore. Well, I think, he underst- I think Jesus knew that our time was short. Believers are that preserving agent, is what Jesus is saying to the life of a depraved culture. They can't stop it, but Jesus uses the Spirit of God and the indwelling of believers to act as an agent that helps slow the corruption so that it, it prolongs the time to when Jesus Christ will come. And he's using us as the salt of the earth to do that. 
we can remind ourselves of these particular components in, like, in a book in First and Second Thessalonians when it says in Second Thessalonians 2, verses se- or verse number 7, he says, for, this, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. See, the restraining component that God is using is the Spirit himself to retain the saltiness. But can I tell you this, that there is coming a day, 1 Thessalonians tells us, that in in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet, Christians and the church will be caught up together with him in the air. Oh, I can't wait for that, but I'll tell you what. Those who are left and remain here without a preserving agent will see the most destructive and depraved culture that they have ever seen in their entire lifetimes. It will make the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. Our job is serious as ambassadors to retain and be the salt that God intended so that we don't get contaminated and corrupted by the world. Can I just ask you this? How much intake of the Bible are you having? See, one of the things about the church that's so good, it's like a refuel station, don't you think? It's like, you come on Sunday, I love Wednesday because it's like, I'm, I'm running low, and then we get together in small groups, we're coming together as a body, it's like, fill me up, I need to be with other believers, I need to be in God's word. And then you're filling yourself at your personal fill station in the Word all the way through the week, but you come together. Why are we refilling ourselves with the Word of God? To take it out to the community. To take it out to people who have never heard the message of the gospel. People in your workplace, young people, people at your school, people who need to see you reading the Bible at study hall and ask you the question, why in the world would you bring that as a reading material? People who see you talk differently, act differently, joke differently, listen to different music. You don't don't do the same things. You don't want the same things. You don't live for the same things because you're salty and they're not. Don't lose a level of your potency and effectiveness in your walk with God. It can happen ever so slightly as you, as, you, as you start pulling away from your devotions little bit by little bit. You start pulling away from the body of Christ. You start pulling away from things like small group. You start pulling away from things like listening to messages. You, you, you start pulling away from these things and all of a sudden, little by little, you find yourself in a place that you wish you weren't. And God doesn't want you to be there. He wants you to retain your saltiness because... If it's no longer good for anything, it, it, for anything because it loses its potency, then, it's gonna, then it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but it, you're going to miss blessing after blessing after blessing and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be able to be the testimony and share the truth the way God intended for you. And it'll be good for nothing. It is like you're living as a Christian taking advantages of all the glories of heaven and security in your salvation, but it means nothing for your daily walk. It's dangerous. Christians can get to that point of effect and ineffectiveness. Challenge you, retain your saltiness. He goes on to say, here's another component. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now he gives another analogy. Not only are you supposed to be salty, but you're supposed to be filled with light. See, genuine believers are the only ones who can be filled with light. But they are not the light in the sense that Jesus is the light. His very being is the light that came to dispel the darkness. We, when he says we, you are the light as a Christian, he means you are a reflector of the light that came. Isn't that what an image bearer does? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and, get, and it says, let, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Why? Because we were supposed to be a testimony to the world of the image of God, the very character qualities that we would, we would find in a divine person. He gave us the capacity, but, but when sin ravaged the world, we became completely depraved, which means there's no good thing that you could ever do to, to come and have eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what? I want to be part of the light, but I've never repented of my sins. If you have never repented of your sins, what Jesus is saying to the crowd that day was, you have no light. You are living in darkness. But I want you to come to the light. You have an opportunity today to repent of your sins, and that's what it's going to take, to repent of your sins to put your faith in Jesus' work on the cross on your behalf, and he'll give you this incredible righteousness that doesn't belong to you, and that he gives you as a gift. And guess what? All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit enters your heart, and he stays there, and your heart is now lit with the light of the gospel, and you can be a beacon that now illuminates the darkness. He says, you, Christians, you genuine disciples are the light of the world. Just as the moon's light comes from a reflection of the sun itself, so too Christians ought to be that very reflection of the Son of God who had come in the flesh in humility so that when they see us, they see him. That and only that chapel will impact our community. When they see him. And that's the whole point of being the light. Oh, but he does this blessed thing in the church, does he not? I mean, could you imagine if, and we have said this over and again uh, in the course of this series, could you imagine if we only had one light sitting here in the auditorium? Or we just turned one light on? Now we'd get complaints after Sunday morning. We need to turn the lights on. But could you imagine that it would dispel a little bit of the darkness? But when you get all of these people, these genuine believers together, they become like a beacon to the person who could save people. And that's a reason to get out in your community and rub shoulders with people and take people to lunch and take them to coffee and share with them the gospel and figure out how to read the Bible with them and ask them where their hope is found and how are they going through suffering and how can you be an aid to them just so that you can share with them the light of the gospel. So often we're distracted and busy with so many other things 
in a culture that seems to have gone mad with entertainment. You can look at around every corner. It's like, you don't even have to wonder what you do. Here, here's a mindless thing to do. Here's a mindless thing to do. Here's a mindless thing to do. You can find it everywhere. If you fall prey to doing a number of mindless, earthly things, it has its way of starting to lose the effectiveness that the light was intended to illuminate. You can't shine, Christian, the way that you're supposed to if you're doing the same things that the world is doing. You can't talk the same way. You can't joke the same way. Young person, if you're in school and you're sitting amongst a group of peers, whether it's college or high school or anywhere you happen to be, and all of a sudden they're not saying, something's different about you. Can I just challenge you, adults, if you're at your workplace and you're complaining like everybody else, they're not seeing the light because you're not living as a child of light. But you can correct that. You don't have to stay there. That's the whole point that Jesus sat the multitude down and said, I want you to see the light. I want you to see me. He calls us to this in Philippians 2. He says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in this world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Oh, Christians, we are the preserving agent that God intended for us that we're supposed to be as genuine believers. We're the light that's supposed to illuminate the darkness and show them the light. How do we do it? Well, we have to hold fast to the words of life. You have to be in your Bible. You have to be being discipled and discipling others. You have to be being in community. You have to go out and share this. All, if you don't go out and share it in the life of the community, you're just a sponge full of stuff and nobody's, and you're not wringing it out. And what good is it to keep all that in that sponge? Learn in order that you may share with people who are living in darkness. And when you do that every time, you will act as Jesus Christ himself to say, I've come so that they can have life. You want them to have it abundantly. You can't bring salvation, but you can bring the person and you can share the person of Christ with them who, who, is, who is the saving agent. Community of believers, don't fall prey to what happens in 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him. He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we're to live like Christ, then we have to fight against the darkness. Which means you have to actually apply this by saying, where is it that I am taking in more of the darkness instead of, sh instead of illuminating the light? You see, if all you're doing is, is, is things that have earthly value, it will impact you. We are called to be the light in the world. And yes, believers, being a light in the world and standing for God's principles and standing on God's word does make a difference. I mean, could you imagine where we'd be? I mean, I mean, just a number of months ago, just this past summer, because, because so many Christians who embrace that Jesus Christ is the life and that he is the one who gives life, 
It's, it's because of so many Christian nonprofits and organizations that we all of a sudden experience something like the overturning of Roe v. Wade. How do you think that happens? You think it happens because Christians just sat in their pew and then they never did anything? No, it happens because countless hours and days and, and all kinds of efforts went in to, to, to pouring into saying life is valuable and all of a sudden, guess what? Who would have ever thought we would see that day? Christians can be a light and impact the world around them. They're salty, they're, filled to, they're, they're called to illuminate. Which means don't fall prey to thinking that somehow, even when it comes to various components like, uh, like midterm elections, all of a sudden you received a, uh, an email that said, register, vote. We make no apologies about the Christian's responsibility to be a light and salt in the world. If all of a sudden you don't take your stewardship seriously in a way that you want to, you want to be the light, there's something wrong. Be the light God wants you to be. You can make a difference. And the difference that you want to make is not a political difference. It's a spiritual difference in the lives of people where Jesus can transform their lives. Whereas Christians make these decisions and they're salt in the world and they're light and illuminate the darkness that people do this, that, they, that Christians remember their mission. Verse 16 says this. He says, in the same way, in the same way that you are salt, in the same way that light is supposed to illuminate, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Believers, what good would a light be if you put a basket over it? What good would the light be that's illuminating if you're not doing it for the glory of God? None. See, what you do matters, but why you do it even matters. The light that you share with the community and that we're called to share with the community around us is not for our glory, not for the glory of the chapel, not to say, how many empty spaces yet do we need to fill? I hate to tell you this, but... On elders' meetings, we're not trying to figure out how we can put smoke and lights and figure out everything to just get people in the building. Because the people are called to go impact the sphere of which that God has called them to live in, their workplace, their friends, their family, so that they are the light. God wants the chapel to be this kind of place as a community. He wants us to be a welcoming place where the light that shines the greatest is the one that brings the, the, the glory to the Heavenly Father. That you, you don't get to just afford the opportunity. like, I've been a member for so many years. Oh, we got like, you know, 30-year members on this side, and then you get the five, 10-year. Like, it's not about years. It's about light and saltiness. You can live your whole entire life and if, if the gradual component of your Christian walk, if it loses its savor and the light begins to diminish, then you can get the end of your days and you could have been very ineffective and spent all of your years here on earth doing things of only earthly value. Guard yourself, Christian. Be mindful that the glory that God deserves and he wants us to declare is his glory, 
Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. This good works that he's talking about is not just to to promote activity, just find out something to do. (laughs) No, it's about the good here is predominantly about beauty. It's predominantly about the savoriness when you look at at Christ the Son and you say, look at him. Look at his love. Look at his forgiveness. Look at his mercy. Look at his compassion. That we do good works in a way that declares the beauty of the glory of God. Yes, it will include activity, but it includes activity that comes from a heart that genuinely loves him. And when the heart that genuinely loves God, you know what it just can't help doing? It can't help doing things like this. Hey, have I told you about my God yet? Have I told you about Jesus who saved me? Can I tell you about my community, who's also believers, by the way, and God actually did a work in their life? You should really meet these people because they're a really transformative group, and they're going to love you because they have the love of Christ. They're going to forgive the way that the forgiveness of Christ is. You've got to meet these people. And you know why it's even possible? Because God did something in them they couldn't do themselves. You can't stop talking about what you love. Christian, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Because as you do it, you will love others the way God wants you to. So that you don't lose a level of your saltiness. So let me challenge you as a believer. What are some different ways you could lose this as we close? Where your light could not illuminate as strongly, where your salt has lost a level of its potency. All we have to do is follow the Sermon on the Mount and watch what Jesus is doing by this theme. You're the salt, you're the light. Do it for the glory of God. Well, you can be ineffective if all of a sudden, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, when anger becomes pervasive in your life. You don't become a reflection of a preserving component when you're mad at the world. When all of a sudden in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you're filled with lustful thoughts. And the permeation of the world and the culture and all the things that you see and perhaps even think about in private, all of a sudden to permeate things that are not about the light and not about the gospel, you can lose a level of your savory component and your illumination. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, if all of a sudden you want a, a, a believer loses its saltiness, they can do so by, having, by divorcing for, for not the reasons that the Bible gives. You realize divorce is such a serious thing. And he puts it in the list of his ethical value system that he's teaching and saying, you want to be a light? Don't do these things. Be this way. Don't get divorced for unacceptable reasons. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, uh, he says, uh, he's saying, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, he says, being people in in the word, being people of our word, uh, he says, let your yes be yes. Don't volunteer for things and then never show up in the world. Don't be a kind of person who says, hey, I'll take that job, and then on Monday you don't show up. Be a person who desires to be a person of of, the, of of your own word. 
You can lose your saltiness and illumination by Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, if all of a sudden you'd be a person who wants constant revenge when people do wrong to you. You can lose it if you don't love your enemies, Matthew 5. You can lose it if you're not giving to the needy, Matthew 6. You can lose it if all of a sudden you pray hypocritical prayers in Matthew 6. You can lose it if you're fasting with the wrong motives, Matthew 6, verse 16. Don't walk around like the Pharisees in all these drudge closing saying, yes, I'm going without salt again. <laughs> you can lose it. You can lose it by laying up for yourselves treasures on earth, Matthew 6, 19, instead of treasures in heaven. You can lose your saltiness by, a, by sinful, worthy, uh, sinful worry, Matthew 6. You can judge others wrongly according to Matthew 7. You cannot love others and you cannot even bear godly fruit. And when, if we don't build our house on the rock, which Matthew 7 says, we will not be the salt and light that God wants us to be. The Sermon on the Mount was designed for us to take a look at our heart and the ethical Christian system that we live by and our Christian worldview and say, will you be that kind of light? Will you, will you be filled not with anger and rage and retaliation, but filled with love and forgiveness and kindness? That is the people of God. That is a message worth proclaiming to the community. And I challenge you this morning, believers of the chapel, who are you sharing Christ with? Who are you trying to be salt and light to? Start and think about it in your family. Think about it with your children. Think about it in your church. Think about it in your workplace as you go away from today. And say, where, where have I lost a little bit of my saltiness that I can begin to say, you know what, I need to, I need to think about doing all these right things because I don't want to lose anything of my potency with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to illumine the way God wants me to. Why do we do this? Because 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you for sending your son You have given us the light of the gospel. Lord, thank you for the church. Spirit of God, thank you for your indwelling work in the lives of these genuine believers who are here. Lord, that you are convicting them, you're challenging them, you're guiding them to the truth. Only you can do that to help us be the salt and light you want us to be. Lord, but so many times we fail to be what you want us to be. And that we thank you that we have one who is our advocate. Jesus Christ, the mighty. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the forgiver and cleanser of our soul. Lord, that if we find ourselves in predicaments where we've not been living out our Christian walk the way we should Lord, that we would take it seriously so that our light, individually and collectively, can shine even brighter to the community that you 
has placed us in here in Missouri. Lord, we need your help. Convict us, shape us by your word. And give us a boldness to be able to speak as your ambassadors as children of light. In your name we pray. Amen.